Hello and welcome to Pharmacies After Hours, a podcast which explores what interesting and quirky things pharmacists get up to in their spare time. Throughout the series, I'll be speaking to pharmacists across the country about their unique hobbies and pastimes to find out more about those activities and how they fit with the world of pharmacy. This week, I'm joined by Graham Brack, a pharmacist based in Northamptonshire, who's also a prolific crime novelist. So to start us off, how did you get into crime writing? That's a really interesting question. I don't read much fiction. The only kind of fiction I read to any great extent is crime fiction. (laughs) So I suppose if I was ever going to write any kind of fiction, that was where I was going to go. But it was particularly sparked because the Crime Writers Association runs an annual competition for unpublished authors. So I started really by entering that back in 2010. Okay. And so what about crime writing attracted you to it? You know, obviously there's so many different genres out there and a lot of health-related genres as well. What, what about crime fascinated you and made you want to write about it? I think crime fascinates me partly because it's about right and wrong, but also because it's a puzzle. I like puzzles. I always have done. There's a certain amount of pitting your wits against the author to see if you can get to the solution before his detective does. That's how I'd read books, and that's the way I wanted to write them. I want to have a little bit of um, a game with the readers, and if they get there before my detective, that's absolutely fine, because that just proves that I gave them the right information and they were able to do the job. It would be a, a very sad thing if my detective always won, because that would mean I've been holding stuff back. So do you ever get messages from avid readers going, aha, I got you. I managed to work it out on chapter eight. Yeah, quite commonly, I get messages saying, I was only three quarters of the way through the book and I worked out who did it. Or sometimes they tell me, I worked out who, but not how. Or I worked out how, but not who. (laughs) And that's fine. Equally, I get people who say, I got to the end, I read your explanation, I still can't understand how they did it. (laughs) And so you mentioned that you read a lot of crime writing almost exclusively. What kind of writers inspired you? (laughs) Strangely enough, ones I can't emulate. There's quite a few historical ones, but... People like Philip Kerr, who wrote the Bernie Gunter novels, great novels, but I couldn't write that kind of hard-boiled, really tough detective. I tend to write funnier things, so my detectives are quirky and a little eccentric, and they are sometimes the unintentional butt of humour, because that's endearing, in a way, if they don't realise the foibles that they have, and other people do. I think that's quite sweet. So I tend to write shorter than average novels, typically around 70 to 75,000 words. And I tend to write novels that have some humour in them, just to lighten the load a little bit. I don't tend to go for the Agatha Christie type novel, simply because I can't write in that style. I was thinking about it before we um, started this podcast. And, uh, you know, crime fiction is such a a broad genre there's so many different subcategories within that and you know historically you mentioned Agatha Christie she's kind of the historical archetype but nowadays you've got so many different writers who do kind of modern stuff all the way back to kind of historical stuff where would you say you kind of fit within that spectrum? I've got two main series of books at the moment one is set in the Czech Republic from about 2006 onwards. So it's not historical. It's not quite present day. It's a few years ago. And the other one is is set in the 17th century Dutch Republic, back in the days of Vermeer, Rembrandt, that sort of era. 
And that was partly because it's a fascinating time, but also I don't have to worry too much about getting the forensics right because there aren't any. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought it might be um, helpful to the listener uh, if I read out a very short passage from one of your novels. And the first one uh, I'm going to read out is from Dishonor and Obey, which is within the second series that you mentioned. And it's interesting that you mention putting humor into into crime fiction because uh, this one struck me as being a bit of black humor. So this is from the first chapter. The narrating character has just had quite a, a tense meeting. As a mark of respect, we usually left the rector's presence backwards, bowing in the doorway and reversing out into the passageway. I had never quite mastered this action, and my rear end bore several indentations caused by the rector's door handle. On this occasion, I was spared the door handle and enjoyed the immense pleasure of hearing a sharp intake of breath from the bedellus as my rump smacked into his groin. Now, I really enjoyed that because I always think of crime fiction as tending to be quite dry. I mean, I Scandi Noir phase that everyone seemed to go through kind of passed me by because I found it a little bit too dark, really. Do you feel like the kind of humorous moments, the black comedy helps leaven the story? Yes, it does. I like the Scandi Noir type stories, although there were one or two of them that just leave you a bit depressed at the end about how awful people can be because they're realistic. But actually, the real world is not always a very pleasant place. I completely understand. The dark sense of humour that runs through your books, where, where does that come from? Is that from your work in pharmacy? Because having spoken to some pharmacists, they tend to have a wicked sense of humour and it's just kind of a way of dealing with the line of work. Yes, it is. I suppose I was thinking back to university days and what our lecturers were like, because my hero in the, the book you just read from is a university lecturer, and he's got all the foibles that university lecturers tended to have. He's young, he's unmarried, he doesn't actually know much about the world except his subject. Very clever when it comes to his subject, and he can't understand why everybody doesn't think his subject is fascinating to everybody else. Like many people, when you get very highly specialised and you know a lot about one thing, you can't wait to tell people about that and their eyes glaze over. And I think one of the other things which makes him endearing, particularly to women, I'll explain why that's important in a minute, is that he needs to be cared for. He's completely incapable of looking after himself in the world. He's just too naive. And the reason it's important is that two-thirds of crime fiction is read by women. So they tend to like a different kind of story to men. Men like generally speaking, I'm, I'm obviously taking a very broad brush approach here. Men tend to like linear stories. They like it nice and simple. One thing happens, one thing leads to another, which is why, say, the James Bond books are very popular with men, less so with women. One reason why. Women tend to like complexity, and they tend to like characters that they can relate to. So I've tried in Master Mercurius to give them somebody who, bless him, shouldn't probably be allowed out on his own too much. <laughs> doesn't realise what's going on around him. They say that's quite endearing, especially the bits when he's trying to talk to women because he's no good at it. He knows how to talk to his grandmother, but he doesn't spot, for example, that fathers are trying to hook him up with their daughters until it's a bit further down the track. And then all of a sudden, the awful truth dawns on him that he's being set up here with what is essentially a 17th century blind date. <laughs> oh, I think I think we can all we all we can all put our fingers on uh, people that we know who are a bit like that. That particular series of books has got quite an ecclesiastical theme from what I've read of it, and 
I wondered where that came from. It came from, first of all, the fact that the universities were very heavily ecclesiastically biased. He, he works at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and Leiden really existed in order to produce priests or ministers for the Dutch Reformed Church. So at that time, an awful lot of people that we tend to think of as scientists were also actually clergy. So I think that was part of it. But also, where else do you go for questions of good and evil except into religion? So if you really want to focus on that, it's quite a good start because you've already got somebody who knows the territory. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and I think questions of good and evil are what I'm trying to specialise in. I'm trying to, to sort out what is right, what is fair, what's justice. Does law and justice always arrive at the same place? Does that internal moral debate ever permeate into your work? I mean, it doesn't happen every day for pharmacists, but a lot of the time pharmacists have to make decisions where there isn't kind of defined standard operating procedure, if you'd like. Yes. And they have to use their own personal judgment. Is that something that you've, you've noticed? Uh, yes, I think it does. I think there are times when you're a pharmacist and you think, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with what I'm being asked to do here. So it might be... For example, the mother who comes in with the daughter of 16 or 17 and wants to stay while you have a consultation with them, and you have to say quite politely, I'm very happy for you to stay if your daughter is happy, but the default is you don't stay. I talk to your daughter because she's the patient. And those sorts of things, trying to explain that to people can be quite difficult on occasion, but it's a small ethical problem. There are plenty of others. You can't, for example disparage another healthcare professional, but there are occasions when you think you really need a second opinion about what you've been told, if that was what you were told, because I suspect you haven't remembered that quite right. If you think the doctor said that to you, I'd be surprised, but it's possible. Just thinking, I, I guess that um, especially consultations, and that goes for any healthcare professional, are a bit like um, solving solving <laughs> a... a uh... Yeah. a crime trying to work out from the symptoms what what the cause is yeah there, there's deductions to be made and the occasional flash of genius when you suddenly think i wonder if it is this <laughs> which i've never seen before but it could be yeah you know i guess in pharmacy most of the time it's uh something fairly normal but it's always interesting when you get something a little bit different I wanted to mention another quote from the series of books set in Prague, as you mentioned before. And this was a very brief exchange between the kind of titular character of the book and someone who is introduced in the first chapter. And the reason why I picked it out was because I thought it just showed a different side, a slightly different style. And I thought it'd be interesting to our listeners. So I'll take it away. I remember the Red House, said Slonsky. Never been inside, I'm pleased to say, but I know what it was. Grim place, agreed Hannes, but lovely gardens, even if I say so myself. Good soil, you see. It makes all the difference. I'm assuming you're not going to ask me about fertiliser. No, it's more something that I've seen that puzzles me, and I don't know whether to report it. And if I do, who I need to report it to. Hannes finished his drink, signalled for another, and asked Slonsky if he wanted one by the silent method of pointing into the glass and raising an eyebrow. Slonsky drained the glass in mute acceptance. Do you believe the dead come back? Hannes asked. That's very different to the previous quote, and that was written before the series that we, we previously talked about. I wanted to ask, first of all, kind of, have you noticed how your writing style has changed through all the different novels? Yes, 
And to some extent, that's deliberate. So the Slonsky books are written in the third person. He did this, he did that. Whereas the Mercurius ones are written in the first person. Mercurius dictates them when he's an old man to a secretary. That means they're two different types of story because when you're dictating in the third person, it's possible for things to happen that Slonsky doesn't know about. Ah. So you can write a different type of story where the reader is in on something, but Slonsky doesn't yet know it. When it's first person, Mercurius can only know what he knows. He can only write what he knows. He can tell you that he discovered something afterwards, maybe, and he can be wrong, which is, in a way, a liberating feeling. Mercurius doesn't always get it right. In fact, in the book I'm working on at the moment, book six, he goes spectacularly wrong. He completely misinterprets something he sees. It, it does make a difference to how you write. But I, I also thought that with the first one, I wanted to give the impression that Slonsky is a good detective who's worked against constraints in the days when the Czech Republic was a communist country and he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. And those constraints are now off and he's trying to make up for for lost time. They also differ because Slonsky has nothing else in his life apart from work, really. He, he goes out in the evening and has a few drinks with his mates, but he doesn't have anything else and he's dreading retirement. Whereas Mercurius is a very reluctant detective. He doesn't want to do it. He just wants to be left in the library with his books. And those two outlooks come through in the way they speak about their work. Slonsky is desperate to keep succeeding to do a good job, partly for its own sake, but partly so they'll keep him on. Whereas Mercurius wouldn't mind failing if it meant people stopped asking him to do things. It's an interesting concept. I'm not an avid crime fiction reader myself, but um, it's it's always interesting reading it when you have novels in, in uh, different uh, kind of, you know, first person, third person, because you're, you're right, you know, you can only know so much when it's in the first person and you are following their kind of story whereas in the third person and i think lots of crime tv shows nowadays adopt the third person almost because they want to almost to create cliffhangers uh when when the, the 40 minutes or the hour are up they will show you something that the main character hasn't seen yet just so you want them to find out in the next episode so it's interesting that um you've adopted the kind of more personal human-centered approach to novel writing, because it almost means that you have to follow that journey. Yeah, I hope so. I, I want them to be interesting people. So you talked about Hannah Simmel there, who's a gardener, who just happens to have noticed that one of the flower beds is lumpy. And he thinks, should I investigate why this flower bed is lumpy? Should I get somebody else to do it? And, and that's why he's doing, he just vaguely remembers that Slonsky is a policeman. They, they drink together occasionally. You see them in a bar. This fellow will know what to do. I'll ask him. And that's what that dialogue was largely about. And he's working his way around to it slowly. Do you believe the dead come back to life? It's a way of querying whether there's any possibility that people are buried in the gardens of the Red House that he's now looking after. And just before the, the passage that I read out just then, you know, he was having this kind of internal debate with himself whether or not he should approach anyone. And that was a, a very brilliant, elegant way of talking about the kind of thematics of living in a communist country without kind of referencing that history directly. And I wanted to ask how much research goes into each book? And specifically with that series, did you travel to Prague to kind of research the different places? The Prague story started with a trip to Prague. <laughs> uh, I've been, I think, three times since I started writing them. 
I have a sense of place. So really odd. I had an idea for a story, but I hadn't decided where it was going to be set. Travelled to Prague, and one afternoon, my wife and I were walking through an area of Prague, and I spotted a place and thought, this is where I would leave a body if I wanted the body found. Because usually murderers don't want the body found. But if you want people to know you've killed someone, and there's a reason why you want them to know, you want to leave it somewhere where they'll be found. So that's where the story sprang from. This place was just right for the, the purpose and everything else pretty well built from that. There, there is a lot of research goes on. I, I do, uh, well, two ways of looking at it. I either do too much research or not enough. I do too much because I get bogged down into stuff that I actually don't need. Uh, I'm In the days when you could go into libraries, I spent too long in there finding a book that's absolutely fascinating. I can give you an example. For my Sixth Mercurius book, he washes his boots at a pump in London, a water pump. So I thought I'd better find out where the water pumps were to make sure I'm not writing complete drivel. Did a bit of research and discovered that somebody had produced a PhD uh, on the question of the water supply of London, 1580 to 1820, uh, large parts of which I have now read. <laughs> and actually, I only wanted it for one sentence, but it was so fascinating just reading about where London's water came from back in those days that I, I've absorbed information I don't need. Uh, and that's a fairly common thing. I, I, I find something that fascinates me. On the other hand, occasionally you see something in one of these sources and think, this has got to go into the book, although I didn't know it was there and I've got to do a bit of rewriting to accommodate it, but I've got to put it in. Uh, and an example there was I found a, a thing called Heidi Copper's book Eidekopper was mayor of Amsterdam, and very helpfully, he kept a little notebook in which he recorded all the bribes he'd given and received, what he expected to get for the money, whether they delivered or didn't. And I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating if that fell into the wrong hands? Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's brilliant. I'm sure that the person whose PhD you read will be just very glad that someone's read their PhD. I know a lot of the time uh, these things normally read by whoever signs off on the Viva and that's about that's about it. It's interesting the the water pumps as well because I think the London water pumps were the first uh, case of uh, track and tracing because they, they, they had a cholera outbreak or something like that, and they, they managed to trace it to a single pump which had sewage feeding into it. So all, always relevant, always relevant. Um, so I, I do want to ask, when you write, you know, obviously pharmacy is a very hectic profession. Do you write at work, or is it in your spare time, or is it whenever you have a moment? I've pretty well retired from day-to-day -day community pharmacy now. I, I still do some work helping people set up their pharmacies and, and that kind of thing. I did write at work occasionally, but work is just too busy now. So what I tended to do is I'd have a notebook and a pen, and if something important occurred to me, I'd, I'd make a note of it and then go away and write it up afterwards. Mainly, I write in the evenings. I've got quite good at writing quite quickly, but I'm composing in my head before I set it down on paper. So by the time I come to set it down, quite often I'm just writing a scene that I can see in my head or dialogue that I can hear in my head. So I've worked it through a few times during the day. Have you had any experiences at work which have then actually fed into your novels? Well, that's an interesting question. Sometimes people ask me why I don't often have people poisoned. And I suppose it's because I'd be so terrified I'd get it wrong. <laughs> and I ought to know more about it than I actually do. <laughs> but um, I've, I've steered away from poisoning as a method. I think occasionally people and, and people's foibles 
get through. The kind of thing that you come across that I, I just think is so human that you have to include it. Folks who come to talk to you about something highly confidential and you take them into the consultation room to give them some privacy and then they broom it all out so they can be heard outside anyway, despite the fact <laughs> the door's closed because they're, they're shouting at the top of their voice about some very personal matter. Or they say they don't need to go into the consultation room and they tell you everything anyway and offer to show you scars and all that kind of thing. I think those sorts of characters, larger than life ones, get into the books because they're interesting. Obviously, you, you said you've kind of semi-retired now, but uh, what do your colleagues make of your novel writing? Do you ever walk in and see them kind of face pressed up against the latest novel? I've got a little coterie of pharmacists who keep saying, when's the next one coming out? When's the next one coming out? And they buy everyone and they comment on it. I think they're quite proud of the fact that pharmacists can do this kind of thing. I think there's a sort of reflected joy in the fact that one of their numbers, in fact, several of their numbers are writers. I can think of several pharmacists who write in some genre or other. But I think they, they enjoy that. Very occasionally, one will feed me a bit of information and say, do you think this might be interesting in, in your story? Ah, so you've got sources just like me. <laughs> yes, uh, a little bit, uh, but occasionally they they come up with a gem. Yeah. They point to something, and not very often a, a anything like a finished story, but just a little snippet that you can put in, a little bit of mishearing, a bit of dialogue that goes wrong, something that somebody said to them once. One of the things that Mercurius quite often mentions in the 17th century books are what you might call old wives' tales, medical information that he's been fed that is actually completely inaccurate, but was believed then. And, and uh, some people have given me little tips of things that their grandmothers used to tell them that he will spout, trying to be helpful. But uh, so, for example, he will remark that a lot of people think that bathing too often is very hazardous to your health. It weakens you and you shouldn't do it. Particularly, he says, pregnant women probably shouldn't bath very much because he's been told that. And I found an old book which said it, and I thought, that's the kind of snippet that you put in, because he, he means well, but he actually doesn't know the real answer. Yeah, I, I guess it's always a bit of colour. You Obviously, you read a lot of crime fiction, you write a lot of crime fiction. What, for you, makes a good crime novel? Well, where do we start? It has to be fair to the reader. So the reader has to feel... I'm being told everything I need to solve this crime. I don't like the kind of story where you suddenly discover that so-and-so has an identical twin that we didn't hear about beforehand, which is why he managed to be in two places at once. I, I don't think that's fair to the reader. So I, I think that's true. I think also you have to care about the, the victims. I'm quite careful about my victims. I worry a bit about the very lazy trope of um, women being the, always the victim. I know one or two women writers who are very concerned about the fact that women are, are too often cast as the victim. Uh, and uh, I try not to do that. I do keep a little table saying how many men and how many women I've killed off in my stories for precisely this reason. <laughs> but it's important to me that the women should never contribute to their own injury. Nothing that they did that caused it. Because I, I, I think it's it's sloppy, it's unfair, it's inequitable to always have the women as the dopey victim. 
I would love to see the police officer who gets confused by a notebook in your possessions of women and men I've killed off. Yes, does, does worry you occasionally. It's it's just like uh, I put in one of the books you mentioned there, how difficult it is to lift a dead woman into the boot of a car. And somebody said, how do you know? <laughs> Your Honour. Well, actually, I don't know about a dead woman, but I have helped pick up an unconscious one. So I, I thought that's pretty well the same thing. And it, it is really difficult to, to move somebody who's unconscious. There's no help from them. Yeah. Um, and that, I suppose you would say, was, was part of my pharmacist training. It was on a ward when I was a, a hospital pharmacist. We couldn't leave them where they'd fallen. I guess everything ends up in a novel at some point. You, you've mentioned that you're, you're still writing. Uh, you've got another book in the series coming out. And I wanted to ask kind of what, what's next? What's next in the novel writing? I've contracted to do another one to make up the six Dutch ones. I've got a seventh one for each of them planned. And then we'll see how it goes after that. I may branch out a little bit. I've got other stories that are up my sleeve that um, relate to different time periods. They're all historical to some degree or other, not distant history, but they're not present day. Um, present day involves an awful lot more research in some ways. Because you, you find that um, you start writing a story and all of a sudden a road is closed or somebody builds a wall across a particular place that messes your story up. So it's easier to, to write them after the time that they relate to when you don't have to worry about that. In fact, I mentioned earlier that I, I found a place where the first body was left in 2006. That place is not there now. It's been put under an extension to a railway station goods yard. So you won't find it if you go back to Prague now. But in 2006, it was there. Ah, uh, okay. I photographed it to make absolutely sure. <laughs> make, make sure that was where the body was or make sure that it was still there? Make sure that I could picture it when I went back to my desk and wrote about it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> saved yourself there mobile phone is a great thing for authors because you can just quickly snap a couple of pictures just to say you can see this from here can't you you can see this doorway from this particular place uh, that, that kind of thing it's a really handy thing to have oh interesting um, and one question that, that um, I ask all the people that I get on this podcast there's some people might be listening here they've maybe written a couple of chapters they've got an idea that they've jotted down on the on the back of a script you know but they they haven't quite taken it any further yet what would you say to them to get them to go all the way I would say that you've got nothing until you've got the end ah so there's no interest nobody wants to read two thirds of a novel or three quarters of a novel you have to finish it and you have to finish it and know where you're going next because if your novel is successful, somebody might want another one. Particularly in the case of crime novels, people want series. So you have to have an idea that this can be repeated. These characters are interesting enough to try again. But just keep going until you get it right. The Crime Writers Association annual competition, I think from memory, runs from November to February. It's on their website. You can find it there. My own publishers at the moment have got a competition for new writers where they're guaranteeing you a five-book contract if they like your story and you win the prize. So there are plenty of competitions around. And usually when you enter these, you get some kind of basic feedback about what they liked, what they didn't like. So there are things to work on. But as I say, until you've actually finished a story, you're not a writer. Mm -hmm.
Well, I want to say a massive thank you to Graham Brack for joining me on the Pharmacist After Hours podcast to talk about crime fiction writing, and thank you for listening. Next week, I'll be joined by Danny Ross, a pharmacist and underwater photographer. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more, visit the CND website at chemistandruggist.co.uk. Thank you.